I get the honor of concluding the Summer Psalter series today, and I'm going to be in Psalm 145, which was picked by all of you. So um, I think Pastor John said, if you don't like it, then it's your fault. I, I, I don't think that, but that's what he said. So, um, But there's been some amazing um, messages and challenges from Pastor John and Pastor Jordan and Pastor Ethan so far in these series. So if you haven't had a chance to see them all or be here, there's a chance for you to watch those and catch up on those online, and um, you won't regret it. So, But before we read it um, and get into the Word... I would like to explain a few things about the book of Psalms. Um, I believe, and I'm sure many of you do, that it's really important to talk about the book, talk about the background of the book, so that we can understand the context better. This is important because we're not allowed to just take scripture and make it mean whatever we want it to mean, right? And that's really easy to do when you don't know where it's coming from. So Psalms, which we are in and have been in, has 150 chapters, and they've been broken down into these five books. And today's portion is from the fifth and the final book. Uh, It's the third longest book in the Bible. Does anyone know what the first two books are that are the longest in the Bible? Anybody? Okay, I'll skip it. Nope. But at least someone guessed. Genesis? And Jeremiah. Anyways, I thought that was interesting when I was reading it, so just testing you guys, see what it's like. I bet you the kids would know, because we talk about that upstairs. Um, It's written over a period of a thousand years, so that's a really long time. And what you have is a collection of thoughts and prayers and poems and confessions and songs to God. So oftentimes when I read this book or when you're reading this book, it kind of feels like this emotional roller coaster. There's many moments of like great, great heights, emotional highs and glorious praise to God, but there's very detrimental moments to very depressing, very low moments. It's a book that's very real and very raw. For example, in the New Testament, Jesus will tell us to pray for our enemies, which many of us know. And David does that in the Psalms, but he will say things like, wipe my enemies off the face of this earth. Okay, that's descriptive, it's not prescriptive. That's not how he's telling you to pray. So what I mean by that is you shouldn't go to your workplace and say to God, wipe, off my, wipe my enemies off the face of this earth. That's not what it means, it's descriptive, right? He's sharing his heart, he's praying. Um, But I also think it's interesting to bring that up because it's very telling of the character of God. Because there's this level of authenticity that you can come before God with your feelings and with your heart. It doesn't have to be this prim and proper and holy and fancy words that you say when you pray. You can just come to him and say, I'm fierce, I'm mad, I'm upset, right? Because he knows your heart. You can come to him in all honesty. The book of Psalms is absolutely beautiful. Some of the most beautiful words I've ever written, that have ever been written. And not just in scripture, I'm talking about in the entire English language. It's just beautiful. So if you haven't taken time to read it, I definitely suggest doing so. Uh, The book reads very much like a journal in parts. It's remarkable, remarkable because you don't actually have this anywhere else in the Bible. 
And why, what I mean by that is we have examples in the Bible of people's actions, but we don't know their thought process before they've done those actions, nor do we know them after the action. So for example, in the Bible, it'll say Peter denied Jesus, and the Bible reports that he weeps bitterly. But Peter doesn't have a journal entry. We don't know what's going through Peter's heart or Peter's head. But when you read Psalms, some of them have these subtitles, and these subtitles can be cross-referenced to subtitles in the original story. And you can read them like a journal entry. About half the Psalms are written by David, and this one is today too, and he writes about everything. Every moment in his life, he writes about it. He writes prayers to God to give it back to God. He writes songs to God. Uh, When David's son rebels, he writes about it. When he's fleeing from King Saul, he writes about it. When he's hiding in caves, he writes about it. He just keeps writing about it. He sleeps with another man's wife and wants her husband killed. He writes about it. You know, create in me a clean heart. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, right? He writes about it. So this stuff is so connected to us because it's real and it's raw emotion. It's so, relevant to, uh, it's so relevant to us because this humanity experience in the book of Psalms is a universal humanity that we all experience today. So David may not be anxious about like inflation or COVID, but he was anxious at times. Right? He may not have been worried about the rising prices of fuel or families or whatever's going on, but the same fear, the same depression, the same anxiety, the things that plague us today, David experienced on a day-to-day. Then there are other psalms that he writes, and he may not have been going through anything at all, or we don't know that he was. He just writes. Right? He writes about the heart of God and the character of God and the greatness of God and the peace of God and the righteousness of God. So when was the last time, like David, that you really reflected on who God is? The awe and the wonder of him, who Jesus really is. Not just what you can get for him or how he can help you, but truly reflected on Jesus in all his glory and all his splendor. That if he gave you nothing ever again in your entire life, the cross is enough for you. When is the last time that you've done that? See, I love that I get to talk about this psalm this week because the Lord's really been working on me and teaching me about this idea of awe and wonder. What it means to be in awe of the Lord and to just marvel and just wonder who he is and and what he's done for us. So when was the last time that you took a minute, you just took a beat to just sit down in awe and wonder of the Lord? to remind yourself that the God of the universe fully knows everything about you and fully loves you completely. Just that in itself is amazing. He knows your best days, he knows your worst days. He knows the things that people know about us, but he knows the things that people don't know about us. And yet he fully loves us. And not because we are good, but because he is good. Now, for many of us, I think it might be easy to remember the last time we awed or wondered about something in our lives. For example, 
preteens, well mine anyways, it might be a win or a kill on Fortnite or Valorant, a video game. When they sank a three-pointer in a major basketball game, Right? For us, maybe it's a bonus at work. Maybe your favorite NHL player or your favorite hockey team, whatever, or sorry, hockey team or football team wins the cup, right? And you're just in awe and wonder, or the perfect sunset, or maybe looking at your child or your grandchild accomplish something, and it just left you in awe and thanks and wonder. There are so many things fighting to capture our attention to capture our awe, to capture our wonder in all this great world that's around us. And so often we get lost in the things instead of taking the time and to stop and stand in awe of how truly awesome our God is. See, we tend to, as humans, turn good things like success and career and love and possessions and, dare I say, even family, we take these good things and we turn them into ultimate things. And when we try to find our joy or our sac- satisfaction or our completion in those things instead, and e- any time a good thing turns into a God thing, we know it's a bad thing. It ends up hurting us or goes around us or it distracts us. So what do we do when we see things fighting for our attention in this world? Fighting for our awe, fighting for our wonder? Well, pastor and author Paul David Tripp said it best, I believe. Only when the awe of God rules your heart will you be able to keep the pleasures of the material world in their proper place. When the awe and wonder of God truly rules in your heart, you can have those things and keep them in their right places. And many of the problems in our lives aren't actually what they seem, but really are just problems of awe and wonder. So today we're gonna read through Psalm 145, and I'm hoping that this shifts your heart. I'm at a season in my life that I'm making lots of tough choices, trying to walk in obedience to God. And this week, like Pastor John just talked about, my whale has exploded. We have had grief, health concerns, car accidents, and honestly, studying this psalm, I'm gonna tell you right now, couldn't have come at a better time. What do I do after a week like that? What do you do when you do find that awe and that wonder? We praise him. We praise him. See, these last six psalms are so full of praise. I really want to encourage you that if your praise life, your awe and wonder is even a little bit lacking, which this happens to many of us, we're quick to come to the Lord in these difficult times, but then in times of praise, we sometimes struggle a little bit. Coming to him in times of victory and joy, we tend to just kind of like go about our business. Or what about praising him even amongst those struggles and those accidents and those deaths, right? And those storms that come our way. We need to be better praisers, improve our praise life. And I wanna encourage you to mark these last six down, like write them down, highlight them, star them, because it will help you to use it, to pray through it, to praise God through it. And this one in particular is amazing. 
So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk through it today. Great praise for our great God. So there are many praise psalms in the book of Psalms, but this one is unique, has some unique features that make it stand out, and I wanna share those with you. Some you may already have noticed. It's the only praise psalm that is actually called a song of praise. See, that's interesting because the original title for the book of Psalms was a song of praise, songs of praise. And out of 150 psalms, there are only nine acoustic psalms, and this is one of them, which basically means that the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is where it begins. So if this was written in the English language, first verse, first word, letter A. Second verse, first word, letter B, and all the way down to the letter Z. Why that is, I don't know. If that helped them memorize it maybe a little bit better, if it was, you know, we praise God from A to Z, I I don't know why that is. But there is only nine of them, and this is one of them. Uh, It appears to be King David's last one in this book. And another important distinction, which might be the most important, is we see in the beginning of this psalm. See, most praise songs have these similar three-part patterns. And they all begin in a similar way with a call or an invitation to praise God. So praise songs will begin with this invitation, this command of the people or an individual to praise God. But King David does something a little bit different here. And this is how it begins. King David doesn't merely invite us to praise God, he expects us to praise God. So verse one. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. So you notice he says, I will extol you. I will bless you and praise your name, right? So we're noticing that. We're gonna skip verse three just for a second because we jump down to four through seven and notice how this expectation spreads to the praise of others. So number four, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So in these verses, King David never really commands himself or anyone to praise God. He asserts it. He confidently expects that it will happen. He shall and we shall praise God. But do we all just praise God in like any old way? No, this isn't an expectation of ordinary praise, it's an expectation of extraordinary praise. See, King David doesn't expect that God will get praise, he expects that God will get great praise. But why? Well, I believe the answer is in number three, which is why I skipped it. Verse three, and actually a really good summary of the entire psalm and the entire book of psalms, I would be bold to say. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. King David expects that God will get great praise because God alone is truly great. There is no one and no thing greater than the Lord. And when you see the Lord in all caps like that, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. 
God uses God's person, or David uses God's personal name here because he's not just talking about some generic bumper sticker type of God. He's talking about the one and true living God. He's talking about God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the triune God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God he is talking about. Yahweh alone is worthy of great praise because Yahweh alone is truly great. He's so great, David says, that his greatness is unsearchable. It's limitless. So think about it. We now have telescopes that can search out and take pictures of galaxies so far away, like 4.6 billion light years away. It's incredible. But we could have another billion years of technology advancements and we would never even begin to scratch the surface of the greatness of God who created all of those galaxies. What this means practically to you and me today is the degree in which we see God for who he truly is, for how great he truly is, that will be the degree in which our praise of God will be great. So if you have a mediocre view of God, it results in mediocre praise of God. But the problem is not with God, you see. The problem is with us. The problem is, is we have, which I'm gonna call spiritual cataracts. Our vision of God's greatness is blurred by our sin and clouded by the things of this world, right? The vain and the pride of this world. So how do we clear that up, right? Well, we get a clear view in lots of ways, but some of them are um, declaring the greatness of God each weekend as we meet here and we worship together and we talk about the things that he's done in our lives. In our prayer times during the week, when we uh, speak to one another about the awesome deeds and the great things that he's doing in our neighborhood groups, uh, when we put our phones down and pick our Bibles up and meditate on his wondrous word. Put your phones down and pick the word up. If you find yourself having a hard time to praise God, it's not because there is something lacking in our God. It's because there's something lacking in you. A.W. Tozer said this, I love this quote. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You need to see more of his greatness. And just in a moment, in the second part of the song, we will. But here in this first part, David's showing us what great praise looks like. So for instance, he said, so great praise is consistent. He said, every day I will bless you and praise your name. Great praise can be loud. He says, they shall sing aloud of your righteousness. It can be quiet when you meditate on his wondrous works. We can praise God greatly with our thoughts and with our minds. Great praise is personal. I will extol you, my God and King, and sing your praises. But it can be interpersonal. They can speak the might of your awesome deeds with each other. And great praise can't be contained. It says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. It could be translated as, they shall burst, they shall gush forth. The idea is that great praise cannot be held back or held in. And then I wanna highlight verse four before we move on. 
One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Great praise is multi-generational. Think about it. How do you know if something is truly great? For instance, maybe you think the new Top Gun movie is the greatest movie of all time. But how do you know? How do you know for sure? It's not just because you think it's awesome and it's not just because everybody else is praising it right now, because that really doesn't mean much. I mean, I remember a time when we praised the Macarena. So clearly, right, public opinion doesn't matter. The way we'll know that we're truly, it's truly the greatest movie all of time is if generations are praising its greatness to another generation for thousands of years, right? So for comparison's sake, because that's just a movie, let's look at the, e the pyramids in Egypt, okay? The pyramids of Giza. Now, they're called great not just because their size, but because for 4,000 years, one generation has praised their greatness to another. For literally thousands of years, people have traveled from all over the world, young and old, to marvel at those pyramids. But the greatest praise of Top Gun, or the great pyramids of Egypt, pales in comparison to the great praise of God. No one and nothing has ever been praised as greatly as our God. Which is one reason we can know that God truly exists and truly is great. One generation has commended God's greatness to another since the very first generation. So since Adam and Eve walked with God and declared his mighty acts to their children, since that day, since that first generation, there has been an unbroken chain of great praise for our God. So as our kids head up to kids' church, as churches put on kids' camps and, and midweek programs, as our kids see us praising and worshiping and speaking of his name, as they begin to praise and worship, we just added another link to that chain. And I'm so thankful that our church is a multi-generational praise. It is full of it. It is happening here, right? Every single week we gather here, right? to talk about his goodness, to worship him, to sing about him. Kids Church right now, the volunteers are serving and teaching those kids, right, about God's greatness. As we worship together as a family before they go up, it's happening during the week as parents disciple their children, as older Christians meet with young adults, multi-generational praise is happening all the time here. And it's one of the greatest things that I love about this church, we're adding these links on. So God gets great praise when one generation praises him to another. And that's one aspect of great praise that we see in this first part. So the first part is showing us that great praise is multi-generational. The next part shows us that God's greatness is multifaceted. See, King David begins this long list now of reasons that God is great and worthy of our praise. We don't have time to go into every single one of them in great detail, but I'm hoping that we're gonna get a glimpse of God's greatness because even though God's greatness is unsearchable, King David is going to go ahead and get this search party headed in the right direction. So look with me in the beginning of verse eight. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
So God proclaimed these words similar to this to Moses, and it kind of sets the stage for all the coming reasons for God's great praise. So verse nine, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So from this verse on, I want you to pay attention to how often that little word all appears. Like it's 17 times in the rest of this psalm. Because God's greatness is comprehensive in its nature and its scope. All of creation experiences goodness and mercy every day. The good to the bad to the creatures to us all. So verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. So since all creation receives good from God, God will receive thanks from his creation. So from the Rocky Mountains to Banff to the swamps in Louisiana, all creatures here below will praise him. Now we go down to the next verse, which is gonna focus on God's glorious kingdom and his kingship. So verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. So before all the saints go marching in, into God's kingdom, glorious kingdom, they will declare, they will speak, they will tell others, in verse 12, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of his, killed, of his kingdom. So making it known to your children, to your children's children, to other children, make it known to them in their lives, whether it's here in the church, in homes, time of family worship, praise, just speaking all the time of the work, the mighty deeds that he's doing in your life. And then verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So God's praise will continue from one generation to the next without end because God's reign will continue from one generation to the next without end. Now the next two lines, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. You'll notice these little brackets there. Don't let it concern you too much. It's just that they may or may not have been in the perfect original text by King David, okay? So, but regardless, there are many places in the Bible that teach us that God's faithful, teach us about God's faithfulness to his word. So we'll continue on to verse 14, which trans, trans, transitions from the great kingdom up to the character of the great king. So we've gone from kingdom to now the character of God. So the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your eyes, or sorry, you open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. We're like the family dog at the dinner table looking up with puppy dog eyes hoping that our master will just kind of throw us a couple scraps. But see, God doesn't just throw us scraps or leftovers. Like the hymn says, all we have needed his hand hath provided. In fact, he knows what we need before we ask for it. So look at verse 17. The Lord, in, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So everything that happens happens according to God's righteous and kind will. Or like the Apostle Paul would say, his perfect will. But even when it's difficult for us to understand how 
prolonged illness happens or sudden tragedy happens and how can that be a part of God's perfect world? God does not abandon us in our struggle because if you look at the next verse, verse 18, it says the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. For the believer in Christ, his very spirit dwells inside of you. He not only hears us when we call out to him, but verse 19 says, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. Now, I hope you've been noticing how many times the word all has occurred. It did not occur in this verse. Because God does not promise to fulfill all our desires here below. And as long as we are in our sinful flesh, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we don't get everything we ask for, that God says no to some of the things that we think we need or that we desire. Like Garth Brooks says, right? Um, God's greatest gift is unanswered prayers. And we can often look back and see that after we're out of the situation. God will provide and has provided for all of our real needs, including our greatest need, which we're gonna see in the last verse of the section. The last verse stands out to me a bit. Um, I think that might be intentional. Um, all these other verses kind of have this certain style, this rhythm and certain structure. The first line of each verse makes a statement, then the second line either reinforces that statement or kind of adds something to it. But see, verse 20 doesn't do that. Right? So just about everyone says this and then that. So for example, when we read, the Lord upholds all, of, all who are falling down and raises up all who bow down, or the eyes all look to you and you give them their food in due season. This, that, this, that. But verse 20 says, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. I think it seems to be a deliberate contrast and it makes it stand out. Because see, King David has seen this happen all through his life. God has preserved him from Goliath, from King Saul, from the Philistines, from his own son. King David had seen God preserve all those who love him and destroy all the wicked throughout scripture and throughout all the history of his ancestors. So he praises God for his grace in preserving his people and his justice in destroying his enemies. So do you see what I mean now when I say that this psalm kind of shows, well it does show a lot, that our God is not, well it, he's multifaceted and he is not a one-dimensional, boring God, right? In 13 short verses, we have seen God's goodness, his grace, his patience, his love, his mercy. We've seen God's glory, his kingship, his mighty deeds. We've seen God's compassion, his provision, his generosity, his perfect will, his righteousness, his kindness, his nearness, his salvation, God's grace, God's justice, and that's not all. On every page of this Bible, we see all this greatness and more. Now another place that we can see God's greatness is in our own lives because they're not just a bunch of abstract qualities of some abstract God. We can and we should sit down and pray this psalm. 
and praise God for the specific, tangible ways that he demonstrated his greatness to us in these specific ways. So praise God for he has been gracious and merciful and slow to anger when you haven't been gracious or slow to anger or merciful to your parents, to your coworkers, to your friends. Praise God for how he raised you up out of that illness or that hospital bed or how he held you together at the funeral. Praise him for how he's giving you, not just your daily bread, I bet you a week's worth or a month's worth in your freezer at home. Praise him for being near to you when you felt alone and depressed and like nobody could possibly ever understand you. Praise him for fulfilling your desires when he brings families and kids here that you've invited to church. He is worthy of praise for all his greatness to us. And we see that in this psalm. We see that in all of scripture. We see that in our lives, but the clearest place we see God's greatness is not just a place, it's a place and a person. The person is Jesus Christ, and the place is the cross. We see the greatness this psalm is talking about best in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus began his earthly ministry speaking of the glory of the kingdom of heaven which was at hand in him. He let the children come to him so he could, they could declare God's mighty acts to them. His kingdom is not of this world but it's an everlasting kingdom which will someday fill the whole world. Jesus is the one who upheld tax collectors, prostitutes, raised up women who were bowed down with disabilities for like 18 years, offered living water to a woman who was thought of nothing, who had had five husbands, and when over 5,000 eyes looked to him, he took five loaves and two fish and opened his hands and satisfied all their desires. All his ways were righteous. All his works were kind. No one loved God the Father like God the Son. Yet, on the cross, the Lord did not preserve him. On the cross, Jesus died like the wicked. On the cross, Jesus died in place of wicked sinners like you and me. We see the greatness in God's love and the greatness of God's justice fully on display at the cross. See, God loved you so much that he did not preserve his one and only son, but on the cross let him die. Jesus let the skin on his back be destroyed by lash over lash, let the flesh and the muscles in his hand and his feet be destroyed by nails. He let his life be destroyed so that the, by faith in him, your life may be preserved forever. So what are you waiting for? Forsake all your sin. Turn your heart and your life and put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. If by faith you cry out to God, he will hear you and he will save you. And he will fulfill the greatest desires for everlasting life and never-ending joy. And in the end, did, was, did God preserve his son? Yes, he preserved his son body for three days in that tomb. 
And until that glorious morning, he raised him up from the dead. And by his death and his resurrection, God satisfied all his justice, destroyed the power of sin and Satan and death forever. But the reality is, like I talked about before, we don't actually just have spiritual cataracts. Our vision of God's greatness is not just a little bit blurry. According to the Bible, it's far more serious than that. According to the Bible, we are blind. We are blinded by our sin, so we can't even see how great he is. And the only way you're ever going to give our great God great praise is if by his grace, his spirit opens up your spiritual eyes to see the greatness of the gospel of Christ. When by faith in him that happens, and by faith you see how great your sin truly is and how great his love is, you will be in awe and wonder. Unexplainable love, unexplainable grace and mercy, then you'll never want to stop praising him. You will wanna praise him forever and ever and ever, and that's exactly what the last verse says. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is how the psalm began and this is how it ends. They began by declaring, I will extol you my God, my King, and bless your name forever and ever because great praise is not merely multi-generational, it's eternal. God's praise is eternal because God's greatness is eternal. God's praise will never be ending because God's glory will never end. It's immortal. Not even death can stop the praise of God since Jesus died and rose again for life never ending. That means that we, his praise givers, by faith in him, though he died, will be raised to never ending. And guess what? We will spend all of eternity delighting in and praising in Jesus for his greatness because we'll see him as we've never seen him before. Every day we will be greatly praising King Jesus as he sits on the throne and with this power over the kingdom, reigning above it all. Every day we will search out more of his unsearchable greatness and we will never get tired of it. Because see, in heaven, we won't need to imagine his majestic splendor of his glory we will see it because we will see him. The eyes of all Christians from all nations will look into the eyes of Jesus and we will see him face to face. And it will be a good day. And we will greatly praise his name every day forever and ever and ever. Let's stand. I'm gonna pray for you I just kind of wrote out a prayer that was kind of based on this psalm. So if you'd like to join me, that would be great. Father God, you are eternal God and King. Your praise will go on forever and ever. Help us live each day for you, Father, living for your glory and praising your name. Open our eyes and hearts so we will never grow tired of praising you. Your greatness knows no end. I pray that I would share, that we would share your greatness with all those around us. I pray for our children and our children's children that we would know and tell of your awesome deeds to all generations, Father. 
Help us take time to open your word, to pause, to slow down, and to just think deeply about who you are, to sit in that awe and wonder of who you are. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for being so patient with us and showing us grace. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross where your abounding love was on display like nothing else. Lord, I pray that your glorious kingdom will come and your will will be done here. We pray this over this church, this city, this country, the whole world. I pray for those who are searching to call upon your name and to accept you, Father. I pray that this church, the neighborhood church, would share you with those that they love our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family, and I pray that they would in turn use their mouth then to confess that you are Lord and bless your holy name forever and ever. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.